Hello and welcome to the Why Behind the What. My name is Nathan Albert, and as always, I am so glad you are listening to this podcast today. Seriously, I know there are 60 billion podcasts out there. Everyone's got one. There's so many to choose from. So honestly, I do really appreciate you taking time to listen to this one. I really believe that the what can start a conversation, but it's the why, the why behind the what that can truly open up one's soul. And in the last few weeks in these interviews, I hope you've caught a glimpse of that. As I've been talking with people about mindfulness or meditation or silence and solitude and these contemplative and ancient practices, that they really do have a way to rekindle one's faith and to uh, open the our understanding of the divine and transform our lives. In the last couple episodes, I've been addressing race and whiteness and why we must dismantle white supremacy. Now today, I'm happy to welcome back Darren Calhoun to the podcast. He was a guest on my podcast four years ago in episode eight of my first season. In that former episode, Darren and I talk about racial justice and intersectionality and our responses to the killing of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, as well as the mass shooting at Pulse nightclub in Orlando. So, you know, very lighthearted conversation, obviously. But in this episode, we continue that conversation around the theme of racial justice and the need for intersectionality as we dismantle systemic racism as well as his response to living through a pandemic and engaging in protests and the self-care needed to endure it all. We also talk about the importance of lament and belonging and inclusion. Now, Darren and I met a long time ago. We were both working with the Marin Foundation. We did the I'm Sorry campaign at the Chicago Pride Parade in, in 2010 that went viral. He even makes an appearance on the cover of my book. We are both in that iconic photo, so be sure to check that out. Darren is a worship leader. He's an advocate for justice. He's a great photographer. He's based out of the city, the great city of Chicago. He's also a member of the band The Many, which is creating some beautiful music and resources right now. You have to check them out. Darren is truly one of the best human beings I have ever met. He is such a joy. Uh, his presence is incredible, and his the love just oozes out of him for life and for people. So I am truly thankful for him, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to learn more about Darren, he mentions this in the podcast, but be sure to check out DarrenCalhoun.com. You can follow him on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, and his band, The Many. Uh, their website, TheManyAreHere.com. All that is in the show notes, as well as if you want to support Darren and the work he's doing, you can do that through Venmo or Cash App. The handle for that is Hey Darren, and those links again are in the show notes. One additional thing you can do to help this pad podcast out is to rate and review it on iTunes. You can do this online in the iTunes uh, app, or you can do it on the Apple Podcast app on your phone. And I know I talk about this every week, I always plug it. And I know also how many people are listening to this podcast. And I know there aren't as many ratings and reviews on iTunes as there are people who listen to it. So, friends, there's work to do. The more ratings on iTunes, the more iTunes promotes it to other users. So it is very helpful and encouraging to me. As always, this podcast was written, recorded, and edited on Monacan land. With that, here is my interview with Darren Calhoun. 
Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. Yes, it's good to be here. It's been, I think, four years. That sounds about I right. Just, I just listened to the episode this morning, actually. And what's crazy is four years later, we're still I here. I feel like we're still here. <laughs> right? Like four years ago, that episode, we, we talked about racial justice. We talked about intersectionality. It was after the Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. Um, both of them were killed. Mm-hmm. It was just after Pulse nightclub mass shooting. Um, and we just talked about what was going on. And now, almost to the day, right. we're back talking again. But this time we have a pandemic right. um, added on that. But I, I would love for you, as we begin, kind of reintroduce yourself to listeners who may not know that episode and or who are new this season and then we'll get into we'll get into it certainly certainly um again it's it's so glad to be back with you and you're somebody that i love and and the, the work that we've done and put out in the world is still having effect uh so meeting you back in the days of the i'm sorry campaign at the gay fried parade in chicago to years later us crossing paths even as before we start recording talking about the the work that i'm doing now with the band i sing in um, so I think that's a good place to start. Um, I'm Darren Calhoun, pronouns he, him. Um, I do a lot of things that are in a, an effort to make the world a better place for everyone in it. And so what that looks like is I sing in a band called The Many, and it is a progressive and inclusive, justice-focused, uh, intentionally diverse uh, collective of folks who are making music that makes space for lament, that reminds us what hope looks like and hopes to add to the voice of what uh, what music and liturgy looks like in the church. Um, and then here in Chicago, I lead worship uh, at Urban Village Church, um, where I've been for about four years now. And that is another inclusive place. It's an anti-racist uh, place. It's a place that is doing um, doing its, its best uh, to, again, live into this idea that the gospel does speak to justice. The gospel does speak to liberation for everyone. Um, that when we come to church, it's not a chance to escape from the headlines, but a chance to engage them through uh, a spiritual lens. And so I do that. And then I serve with organizations like Q Christian Fellowship and the Reformation Project, LGBTQ Christian organizations that are um, working to make the church uh a place that is safe um, and better for LGBTQ people. Um, and I do all of this work uh, through that lens of racial justice, through that lens of what does it look like to, to be anti-racist, to dismantle the supremacy of whiteness in what we do. And so um, I stay a little busy, <laughs> but uh, I'm still here. That's awesome. I love that. This is why I love technology and social media and friendships that you know, friendships that started over a decade ago right. um, still connect when we move apart or we're miles away or just on social media. So I'm, I always just love these conversations. Um, and I'm so thankful that, um, well, for the work you, you continue to do, I mean, that you did years ago and that to see you evolve and um, grow and to be, to continue to be just a champion for justice. Um, has, has been really cool. I'd love to hear, just as we begin, um, what are your reactions to, as we are in enduring a pandemic, as we see this rise in protests, 
as even this week we see like white leaders saying things like slavery was a white <laughs> blessing um and white people keep messing things up right oh yeah um but what I, I i remember in our former one i asked you how are you doing and this time i just want to ask well what is your reaction to this mm-hmm. um because it's a, I, I feel like we're on we're on rinse and repeat and we are you know so how are you in this moment and what are your reactions to what you're seeing this time around in this very second, I'm really happy to be looking at your face on my computer screen and to be talking to you <laughs> after after probably almost four years. But, you know, good friends pick up right where they left off. Um, in this week, I have been um, the best way I've been able to put it to close friends has been I've been depleted. Um, mm. We just uh, yeah, the day before yesterday, I think it was or yesterday, we got the news that the Supreme Court Um, ruled in favor of protection of um, LGBTQ uh, working rights. And it was a surprise decision on a mostly conservative um, Supreme Court. And as big and as huge as important as that step is, potentially even more important than marriage equality, um, I had no energy to celebrate it. I haven't even posted about it on my social media yet. Um, because again, it's so critical to have that kind of protection, but I've been fighting for and defending my basic humanity so much on so many fronts just in the last few days. Um, and through the length of this pandemic that I am exhausted. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so like that's the snapshot of this, of this week. But if I if I pull back a little bit bigger to maybe the, the last few months, um, specifically looking at the time we've been in, in quarantine and, and self-isolation and pandemic, um, this is actually one of the healthiest times in my life um, with with this sudden change in our in our social norms where we went from we have to go, we have to do, we have to show up in different places to all of a sudden all the things that we always told people, oh, we can't do online. Oh, we can't, you know, we have to meet in person. We just have to. Or, oh, I really need you to be right here for this. Suddenly we found a way to accommodate the spaces for us to do things in a different way. And what that's made for me is an opportunity to rest, an opportunity Mm. to uh, not show up that um, for somebody who's an Enneagram 2 and who um, I feel safest and best in the world when I'm helping, for me to practice that discipline of helping by by taking care of myself and helping by staying home and, you know, doing the creative things that I never seem to have time to do because I'm always busy. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's such an interesting time that instead of me spending an hour commuting here and an hour commuting there and, you know, worrying about gas money to get here and gas money to get there, I can just be and just take mm-hmm. care of myself. So it's a... It's certainly an up and down pattern, but we're here. Yeah, it's an interesting tension that you name the that you are one who does things, mm-hmm. right? You are working to do justice to dismantle white supremacy, and yet the pandemic is forcing you to learn how to be, mm-hmm. right? And that's been a huge theme in my life the last few years of doing things versus learning how to be. Yet at the same time, you're exhausted for the things that have been done yeah. for centuries that have 
in some ways impacted your emotional, spiritual, physical well-being right now as well. Um, I'd love to ask, how about this? Are there, one of the things that I have, have really seen in my life in the last few years um, has been certain practices, a lot of them contemplative, meditation, centering prayer, silence, that have, that have allowed me to learn how to be mm-hmm. instead of trying to do. Are there practices or rhythms that maybe right now are sustaining you mm-hmm. or in the past have sustained you? And I'm just becoming convinced, not only in a season of pandemic when things are anxious and we're overwhelmed, yeah. um, but just as we continue to see the brutality that happens um, in this nation and as we work as we do the work of justice, we need that self-care. Mm-hmm. So for you, are there some practices or things that are really like, this is what is sustaining me to continue to do this work? Yeah. Um, two things stand out in particular. Uh, one of them is just uh, joy. Um, yeah. And when I say joy, I mean, uh, like when I'm saying, getting back to things that are just for me, that I just like. Um, when we started to, to realize that shelter in place would be a thing, um, I, I'm somebody who spends most of my life outside of my home. Um, so my home doesn't get much attention. It, it's just like a place to sleep, a place to do what I have to do and take a shower and, and then go, right? Um, but it was like, no, I, I've, I've lived here for at least 15 years. I probably need to like think about what it, what it's going to be like to be here and be happy because <laughs> I'm not going anywhere for several months. Yeah. Um, and so I immediately, uh, now I've been slowly over the last few years, uh, I have been building my, um, smart home so most of the lights in my home can like either respond to music or change color um but now it's like oh i'm gonna be here here so i've got uh little lights that kind of do all kinds of things that make stars on the walls and and make little aurora effects and it lighting is just my thing out since I was three years old. That's the thing that has always made uh-huh. me really excited. Right. <laughs> so you see me like, uh, cheesing about it now. Um, yeah, but, uh, to, to create those spaces for joy, to create those spaces for things that I really like that normally we kind of discount. We say, Oh, that's childish or oh, that's silly or oh, that doesn't having a star projector doesn't actually help anything, but it helps me. And it's okay for for me to be helped and me to have a, a little place of joy. Um, so yeah, like that's that's the the one big thing. Um, and then the other thing, and this is gonna sound like a plug, but it's not. But it kind of is too. The other thing is uh, my band. Uh, we had all of our traveling, all of our events canceled through the rest of this year, and. Uh, Christian bands, especially on the progressive side, one, there's not a lot of us, right? And then two, we don't get signed by big contemporary Christian labels, and we don't get the kind of promotion on Christian radio because we're LGBTQ inclusive, most specifically, but also because we bring up uncomfortable topics about race and justice. And so while it was already kind of hand to mouth as far as getting bookings and making ends meet, uh, with everything canceled, we had to figure out what are we going to do. And so uh, we determined that we would uh, 
create space uh, for lament as the as COVID nineteen just hit and everyone's kind of reeling in the moment. Um, one of the things that that the many is known for is lament um, of creating that space for us to name what's wrong, to sit with that, and to hold it before God. And so we started doing that on Wednesday nights, and we were like, well, how long are we going to do it? And it's like, I don't know. Um, and we're probably 10 weeks into it now with another one uh, scheduled for tonight. And it has been profound because normally people only connect with us when they see us in person and they hear the liturgy we do with the songs that we create, and then it makes sense to people. Um, but now we've had to figure out how to translate that into online, and the response has been amazing. So that's uh, that's a, a space for me to just kind of name what's going on in the week and yeah. sit in, in community with others, even though it's online, and uh, just kind of be okay. Tell us a little more about The Many. I mean, how was it developed and um, kind of give us the overview of what you as a band are seeking to do? Because you're doing more than just music. Yeah. Um, so the, the Many came about because... Uh, Gary and Lenore Rand, uh, who are kind of the, the genesis of all this, are their couple who um, were, Gary's been a, a leader in church for years, uh, a worship leader and an arts leader, and was finding, you know, he would need things for what was happening in church and just didn't want to, like, use these very vague kind of Christianese responses. And so they were, he, and he has a background of being a, from a musical family and so forth. So they would write new music. Lenore would write the lyrics, Gary would put them to music, and they would write new, new music for these liturgies that were happening that were a response to things like the viol gun violence in Chicago or a response to things um, that, again, you don't have a, a spot in the hymnal to turn to and look to that. And so in them having these things that they were writing, it was like, well, you know, it doesn't just have to stay here. It doesn't have to just stay at our church. And so they wanted to create a place to share that. And so they created uh, the Plural Guild. Um, and that's where they would write these liturgies. And they would um, also with this, uh, they would create these things also with this intent that ritual and tradition should um, serve the people that are doing them. And sometimes we get ritual and tradition that are just serving tradition. Um, and so oh, that's good. They wanted to create things that re-engage people about what it means to have to repeat words or to, to have a certain um, practice that you do. And so they would create new ritual and new words to go with very traditional kinds of expressions of, of worship. And in doing so, it would kind of create that imagination and wonder. It's like, oh, wow, we've been, we've been doing this for years and it never felt so impactful. It never felt so powerful. And so that's like the backdrop for getting a few people together, um, myself and Leslie Michelle and their daughter, Hannah Rand, um, getting us together to just record some of these songs so that churches could access it and know how to sing them. Um, and that, uh, the short, short version of this long story is that became popular all on its own. Um, <laughs> we recorded a Christmas and Advent album uh, in like 2015, and then after that, uh, in 2016 or 17, I don't remember anymore because time flies, uh, we recorded uh, All Belong Here, which was our first full album. And uh, people just absolutely fell in love with that. They fell in love with the title track. Um, and to, to speak a little bit more to it, the title track, All Belong Here, 
um, came from me as a worship leader saying, hey, I would really like a different way for us to engage the communion ritual. Uh, so many churches make it about the, they make communion about the violent uh, death of Jesus on the cross. Yeah. But the communion meal was a celebration of everybody being together around this table, including those who, the one who would betray him. And so I wanted us to have a song that leaned into that part of the story. And so All Belong Here was the, was the birth of that idea um, that everyone does belong here, scars and all. And for me, especially as a gay man, um, as somebody who has been traumatized by churches who have been spiritually abusive and saying, oh, you don't deserve communion and you're not worthy of leading in a church um, to be able to sing that song and to, to join with other people who've also been ostracized or, or eliminated from the communion table and to say, no, we all belong here. And this is, this, this is God's body and, and this is how it works. It's, mm-hmm. ah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's, I was actually, you kind of answered this question, but I want to hear how has this been for you uh, just for your own soul, having to f- finding this place where you are using music to lament, which is something many churches, I would say many Christian or many white churches, many evangelical churches mm-hmm. don't focus on. Um, themes of justice, mm-hmm. themes of inclusion aren't often in a lot of churches or hymnals per se. So how has that been for you um, spiritually as a way to connect with the divine as well as finding it seems like i mean looking at you it's like you just you beam joy as you talk about this so obviously there's it's welling up something in your soul yeah absolutely um the band and my church have been uh really profound for me in what what it's done uh these two places are the first places in my life that i've been normal and by normal, mm. I mean many times in church as a gay man, as somebody who's a, who's a, a public, public advocate for justice, churches tend to, to kind of handle me with, oh, we love what you do. We love your gifts and we love your, your passion, your energy. But we have to attach all these disclaimers and we have to distance ourselves in certain ways from, from the work you do because we don't want to be mm. too controversial. And so in the band and in my church, it's the first time where I'm normal. I don't come with a disclaimer where I can share all the parts of my life with the people I do life and community and ministry with um, and where other people are in the same boat and living out those, those same truths. Um, and that makes it so, instead of me feeling like the lone prophet, and, I, you know, there's, there's a prophetic voice that is still lonely, but instead of feeling like you're the only one and, and you're just kind of hearing God in the midst of, of this isolation, instead it feels more like being a part of the great cloud of witnesses where you uh, have, a, and I'm referencing Hebrews, where it's a great cloud that is cheering you on toward the end, um, who've also been through the fire and been through the hard times and so forth and know that there's something good on the other side. Um, and so, so yeah, it's been, it's been filling. It's been energizing. It's given me a boldness to speak out in ways that I didn't speak out before because I was worried about how people receive it. I was worried about being misunderstood. Um, And now I have people who just get it. I have people who, um, and it's not to say that they're perfect, but who can acknowledge when they don't have it right. Um, And that's, 
to to kind of get into some of some of what we're talking about about evangelical churches, about uh, churches that are often um, dominant in whiteness. One of the one of the values of Western whiteness is getting everything right, staying innocent, and making sure that um, that you always are right. And what happens is it creates this fear of getting things wrong. And so sometimes churches say, well, we need to say something, we want to say something, but we don't want to get it wrong, so we won't say anything at all. Right. Or we want to see an interracism, but when you have that conversation about um, deinstitutionalizing racism in your church, that might make us look bad. And so rather than us doing that, we're going to just find somebody who can make us feel good and tell us good, yeah. encouraging stories about Martin Luther King. Um, right. And so it's, and that's why yeah. that's why lament is so important, exactly. Right? Because lament says, like, as a white person, as a white male, as a white church, we have been complicit in systemic racism. We have hurt and oppressed others. Like, just naming that, right? Lamenting that is like almost as you say, it's like it's freeing, yeah. Rather than rather than holding on to what we think is right. right. And like, as we, as we do that, um, it, it can start us on this journey to like your church being an anti-racist church. Yeah. And it, and yeah. it's, it sets, it sets people free to have conversations mm. and to explore and to, to do things that they felt like, Oh, I don't, I don't know enough or I'm not an expert on this. So I can't yeah. talk unless you're a church leader who says that, uh, <laughs> white blessings or something like that. (laughs) Well, and I, you know, it's so interesting. I feel like listening to white pastors or, and being a white pastor, I should say, I feel like in, in the pastorate, there's something about, we have to be the experts Mm -hmm. on all things, right? Because we're standing up in front of people on a Sunday and we are proclaiming some authority or some great truth. (laughs) And so we have to be the expert on everything. But what happens in being a pastor is like you're not even a, you're not an expert in anything. You're just like mediocre in a lot of stuff. <laughs> like that's just how pastors work. They're not we're not that good at knowing everything. Like uh-huh. yeah, we take Greek and we take Hebrew, but we barely scratch the surface. So we can't say oh, we're like Greek translators cuz we learn how to forget it, you know? Right. Um but I see a lot in these conversations where white pastors we think we have to like you say be right but then also be experts in this right when we haven't even done the work internally Mm -hmm. to do this conversation outwardly and i think that's what you see with um and well this is some of the problems i see with some white leaders who say things that are incredibly racist who then apologize, mm-hmm. and then we forget about it as if, okay, they apologize, we're good to go. <laughs> but there's been no action. Like, right. You haven't backed that up with any action. Um, and I, I just see that over and over with a lot, of, a lot of us who are white and are Christian. Um, and that, for, for some reason, I think now, I'm seeing, I see more white people... Um, I don't know, saying saying things they probably shouldn't say, but I also see a lot of white people actually being like, "Okay, I need to do my homework." Mm-hmm. 
And I've seen that more in my friend group. And it's, that's actually given me some hope that yeah. this, that this time around, something is different. Yeah. I don't think it's going to end, but I think some things are different. Do you, I guess I'll ask this. Do you see glimmers of change, glimmers of hope in where we find ourselves currently? Yeah. And uh, it's funny. I'm, I'm about to like, I'm about to, to, to call out everybody's stuff uh, or Do at it. least the spaces that I'm in, but it's an opportunity for, for change. Right. Um, the other day, uh, Pastor Rod Parsley um, released a video that was, uh, I, I believe it was an excerpt for my sermon, but this excerpt was like, I'm not, I'm going to be silent no more. And then he basically like told black Americans to be thankful for, oh gosh, I don't know if it was slavery or the founding fathers, because it all starts sounding the same to me after a while, but he, he said something that was extremely upsetting to, to black Americans, and it was incredibly irresponsible as a thing to, to consider that you were supposed to be encouraging to black folks in this time of tension. It was like, yeah, no, that's mm. the opposite. Um, and so a, a friend of mine who had attended Rod Parsley's school, um, and who's, he's black, Rod Parsley is white, uh, he had attended a school, and he hopped on Facebook to share, everyone needs to forgive, everyone needs to have grace. And in my normal fashion, I was like, hey, <laughs> might want to pause here and think about what you're asking us to do, because he said something harmful, and while, yes, you know him as personally as a great person who's a nice man and who, who wouldn't overtly do something that you feel was hateful, he said something that impacted us in a negative way. And in the rush to defend our friend, sometimes we'll kind of overlook the ways that they continue to participate in our oppression. Um, and that's one of the hard things of um, anti-racism work is something that involves everybody. It's not just white people need to do this. Um, black people, people of color, need to also do work to kind of uproot the things that are in us. And so mm. we ended up having a really good conversation and uh, talked about what it means to apologize and, and what that looks like in very specific steps, not just the words, I'm sorry, um, but things like acknowledging what, what our impact was, things like um, committing to, to change and to do better, um, things that we normally kind of overlook because we're so busy applying grace in a way that doesn't actually serve the person who's, who's, who's broken trust. Um, because the idea is that I think we should be earning and rebuilding trust amongst each other. Um, but that needs, we need to, that, that requires real, real work. And so I feel like this, I've had more phone conversations with people I almost never talk to <laughs> because after a certain point of going back and forth on Facebook, you, you realize that this would actually go better on a on a phone call in person yeah. if possible but we're, we're in a pandemic so we can't do that right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we uh so instead it's it's creating conversations it's helping everyone to see how we all are growing and challenged and how we're frustrated um you know any anytime there's major social change people feel different ways and so they put voice to it and then you know there's a comment section or there's a phone call or there's mm -hmm. an argument at walmart whatever it is 
Um, and there's a lot of tension around that. But uh, but yeah, we out of that tension, we can create this. Con- we can construct a new way of being. We can construct better ways of living. Mm. Um, so I feel like there's that opportunity right now. I feel like mm-hmm. the number of changes. Oh, this is my other one, and I'm a. <laughs> then don't be quiet. The other thing that I'm so happy about, as being somebody who's been on front lines for for protests and for marches and for for demonstrations for years, seeing real time in ways that are somewhat unprecedented, how resistance is paying off like immediately. We're seeing yeah. statues torn yeah. down, not just by people, but by municipalities. We're seeing streets renamed. And again, some of this is very like. I'm just showing you on the outward, but it's m- way more than we've ever had. I can't turn yeah. on a website or go go to open up one of my devices without reading Black Lives Matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> After so many years explaining and saying and having so many people say they're never going to get it, having so many right. people say it, nothing's ever going to change, having so many people say complaining online has never done anything. Well, guess what? <laughs> yeah, Here it is. We're seeing... The, the fruit of all of this years and years of labor um, kind of all coming to, to fruition really quickly right now. Do you feel we're at like a tipping point? Because I think over our conversation a few years ago, well, not even that. I mean, if we just look over the, I mean, the history in the last 10, 15 years of police brutality mm-hmm. of, you know, black men who continue to be shot and killed by police officers, um, to protest after protest. Um, I agree with you. There is something like our governor just made Juneteenth mm-hmm. a state holiday. Yeah, uh, it's huge. Robert E. Lee statue is in the works of coming down. Um, you know, there's like, there is a movement and I don't want to say, I don't know if it's a tipping point, but I'd love to see. I mean, yeah, are we? Where? What's happening? yeah. It, is it just a facade? Is it just people in power saying, okay, we'll appease the protesters with this statue? Because I think some of it doesn't get to the systemic. Right. But at the same time, it's like you said, for years people have asked for this. Yeah. It's it's a it's the it's the it's the the endless both and where yeah. um we are seeing some things that I think are unprecedented as far as change, as far as engagement, um, as far as response to mm-hmm. the, the kinds of things we've been asking for. I mean, um, Aunt Jemima pancakes are yes. 100 years old or something like that. And now, even though years ago they changed her look right. then, mm-hmm. now they're saying they're not even going to have that name anymore. They're not even going to have that picture anymore. And it's like, oh, now we can do this? Okay. <laughs> Just took burning down a few stores to do it. Um, but uh, so there's this part where we, we are seeing some major things be acknowledged for the first time. But also when we look at other movements and other major social changes, we do see there's a period of great and immediate response and activity. And we're I think we're in that period now. My friend Andre Henry uh, who I work with at Evangelicals for Social Action. Oh, yeah. Um, he talks a lot about this, of how when you look at the different movements in history, you can kind of anticipate where where we're going. And um, we're in that place where everyone's activated. Everyone's kind of reared up. 
we're I think we're especially mm. in this place because of the pandemic, because of the unprecedented um, unemployment, where people one are more desperate for change, two have more time because they're at home. Um, three, they've been cooped up for months. Yep. And so they're like, I'll just go out just to get out of the house, right? Um, so you'll see that. But that's where over the course of weeks and eventually months, that's where the real work gets going. Because as we also see um, yeah. cities are opening back up and who knows what that means for COVID-19 and second waves and third waves. But as we see cities opening back up, as we see other things that are going to take people's attention, the, a lot of the fire will die down. Um, and so I'm I'm hoping that we can quickly move some more policy things that create at least a new baseline for us. Um, because even if every uh, even if every police department in the country were defunded and replaced with public safety um, measures that were amazingly effective, anti-blackness would not go away. It just means one of the systems of white supremacy mm. was dismantled. But it's a multifaceted system. That's good. So yeah. we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah, I think the in in the white community, we often don't mm -hmm. we're so individual in our understanding of race and racism that we we have a difficulty seeing the systemic when oh, I was yeah. just talking to Love Daniel White-Hodge recently about this, where he, you know, it's like he lives in it. He's like, no, we live, it's yep. like a fish out of water. We live in the water. And so, yeah, it's all around us. It's We're swirling in it. Um, and that we as white people have to do that shift to say, look at the water we are swimming in. Not just, not just one community's, one community yeah. is living in this world, but we are all in this and to see the systemic, which can be yeah. over overbearing for, you know, when you start seeing and revealing the layers that can become <laughs> tiresome or, Oh yeah. my gosh, we have a lot of work to do, but it gets to the root of the evil yeah. that we are dealing with. Um, and the, the work that we and have I'm to hoping, do to uproot all I'm this. I'm hoping that, that intersectionality right? becomes a much greater part of how we're looking at all of this. Um, earlier mm -hmm. I was talking about how, like, we all have our own internal work to do. And right now there's a, a growing tension within black communities uh, where all black lives matter is a growing hashtag, a growing conversation. And what that is, is that... Yep. Uh, yeah. Black Lives Matter started by two queer, uh, two out of three of the women who started it are queer. Um, so it's women led and founded. It's queer inclusive. But the attention and even the conversations are typically about black cisgender men. And yeah. this yeah. has always been an issue for black women. This has always been an issue, especially for black trans women. Um, but all of those either don't get responded to, <clears throat> excuse me, or um, they get resisted, including by black men who are like, oh, no, this is mm. about us. And it's like, no, it never was. You just kind of did your man thing where you think <laughs> that you're the center of the of the known universe. And so a thing that centers you is what we need for the world to be a better place. 
Um, and so right now we're seeing people mm -hmm. asking the question, well, if we include trans people in Black Lives Matter, if we include um, women and the struggles that they go through, does it dilute the movement? And it's like, no, intersectionality will remind you that all of it's connected and that if you, if you make things better for everybody, it gets better for everybody. But when you try to isolate and, yeah. and like, oh, no, we're just going to focus on this singular issue, um, you do lose power. You do lose um, the bigger view of how all this is interconnected. So, like, that's the that's the work I've been trying yeah. to do of to my gay fr cisgender friends to be like, hey, we're not doing well by our trans siblings in the way we're talking about this. Or to my cisgender male friends yeah. who are heterosexual to be like, hey, when you think that uh, that talking about black lives needs to exclude me, I'm still a black man, right? Um, and so it's one of those things of oh, there's a there's a lot of work on all the sides, but we have to do it. We have to hold each mm -hmm. other accountable, and we have to fight the system that connects all of us in ways that most of us don't think about. That's awesome. I love that idea of it being yeah um, expansive. I mean, just you even you even did that mm -hmm. motion of just when we restrict it, it it obviously excludes people. It leaves certain people out. It draws our attention away from certain situations only to one or two. Um, but to get an expansive view of the whole landscape, um, yeah, is is it, it, essential. It reminds me of a yeah. one of the pushbacks I sometimes hear when we talk about um, police harming black people. And again, black people includes the uh, trans women who've been killed just in the last few days um, includes the trans woman who was beaten at mm -hmm. a Black Lives Matter rally, like by cisgender black men. Yep. Like we, there's there's a whole lot going on. But sometimes what people will do because they're resistant to the idea of us talking about blackness, they'll say, "Well, more white police officers, um, well, more, more white people have been killed at the hands of police officers," and. They're saying that to negate the importance of talking about black people being killed at the hands of police officers. But what they're not doing is saying, and let's talk about them too. They're not saying, let's protect mm. those white police officers too by changing police brutality. They're not saying, let's include indigenous yeah. people who are, um, who are percentage-wise the most likely to die at the hands of police and who get left out of these conversations too. They're not saying all lives matter. They're saying, stop talking about your life because it makes me uncomfortable. And so I want that to be the mm -hmm. thing that changes, where people don't feel like the only way to protect their lives and to protect their interests is to dismiss. Like, no, add us in. You care about, you care about the safety of police officers, then why not make sure that they're not constantly in danger with the ways that our system demands mm -hmm. them to be social workers with guns? Why not fight for a better way of living where they don't have to commonly be on antidepressants because of the stresses and the demands of their jobs? Why can't we make this about doing better by everybody who's affected rather than assuming that making things better for black people means taking away something from you? It's such a compassionate view. Like, as you, as you shared that, I mean, your voice just, I sensed the compassion and the love. Um, and it sometimes the mm -hmm. conversation is so like my rights or my thoughts and just the yes as 
as we become more expansive and view the system, this broad system of injustice, like that shouldn't make us, I hope Mm -hmm. shouldn't make us defensive. It should make us more compassionate to just say, Oh, we have so much work to do. And so many have been hurt. And this is again, going back to lament, like this should force us into lament. Um, so that we can then right stand up and get to work yeah like what um, what what yeah. would it look like to let love lead this, these conversations instead of us clinging to well i have a right to not wear a mask what what does love ask us to do when it comes to caring for others around us yeah it might love sometimes yeah. makes inconvenient yeah. things for us i'm sure jesus could have been great without having right. to come to to earth and, and be incarnate and die for things that were not his fault. <laughs> but love, like, compelled Jesus to do something else, to do something different. And so I'm just, I just would love to see the legacy of, of the evangelical church. I'd love to see the legacy of the United States. Um, I'd love to see the legacy of people who, who, who claim the name Christian to be one of love, that they would really know us by our love not by what we're against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this is a, a true yeah. moment for Christians. Because unfortunately, I've seen too many choose the my individual rights over what is, how can love lead me in this? What is the loving thing to do right now? Um, and at least in some social media circles and some conversations, I'm seeing that. And I know that's not true across the board, but um, I think a lot of my, I'd say non-Christian friends or those who are more of a secular tradition mm-hmm. are looking at Christians yet again, saying, yeah. what are you, what are you doing? Like you are not, I see right through it all. Um, so it is a interesting moment, I think, for those who want to, live right uh the faith that they profess you know faith yeah faith and and love are the things that that challenge the fear that we have um i I turned Mm. 40 at the end of last year and uh have i'm i'm smack in the middle of my existential midlife crisis um and I, i i say with Yay. <laughs> Mine's coming hopefully next it'll, year. Hopefully yeah. it'll be better than 2020. <laughs> <I'll call you laughs> <up>. So <laughs> Right. Fingers crossed, hopefully. Um, but one of the things that I've realized that in the, the work that I've done, it's always been love-driven, right? It's always been how do we love people? How do we take care of people? Um, and what I've come to find is that some people would be adversely resistant to, like, even my presence, and I didn't have a framework for it because it's like, mm. if, if you haven't met me, oh, wow, somebody just fell or something. I, I live in an apartment building. It, there's noises at all random times. Um, but if you That's haven't right. met me and maybe you only read what I write online, sometimes you can think I'm going to come across as really forceful or aggressive or something like that. But anybody who's met me knows mm. I'm like a giant mm. teddy bear. I, I give hugs and I'm smiling all the time. And. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I try to get people on the phone if we're having a disagreement via text or via um, a social media platform. Um, 
But I, I found that that wasn't even working. I couldn't get people on the phone. I couldn't do a video. I couldn't, I couldn't do the things that normally make people understand mm. where my heart is. And what I came to, to learn is that some people, fear is their primary motivation. And the fear of what could happen mm. overrides the imagination of what good could come. And so the only way that they feel safe is to eliminate what they have deemed is a threat. And so it didn't matter what words ever came out of my mouth because it was coming out of my mouth mm. and because I occupy spaces that they deem as a threat, being a large black man who's also gay and vocal, as opposed to being a very quiet, meek and, and silent thing that just exists in the background, they weren't going to hear it from me. Um, yeah. But the good part is I realized that the loving relationships I've built with people who are a little bit closer to them, where they understand me, but they maybe come from a more conservative background, um, that the relationship that I had with that third party and the relationship that they had with the third party could actually affect the relationship that, that we have with each other. Um, because when they hear that other person say the exact same words I said, all of a sudden they're not afraid and they're able to hear it right. and process it because that person looks like them. That person shares maybe an identity marker like gender or sexuality right. with them and their fight or flight instinct, like this, this brain chemistry to this doesn't get activated. And so that's been, yeah. it's been saddening in some ways because it's like, okay, there's some people I would just never reach directly, but it's been encouraging to say, well, the people that I like talking to are the people that hear me anyway, and knowing that if I invest my energy in those relationships, um, that they'll affect the quote-unquote racist uncle who's not going to listen to me ever. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll affect the homophobic yeah. Yeah. Uh, pastor who has already written anything I have to say off because I said it. And that's why I think it is essential <clears throat> that as white people, this is our work to do, to talk to others and to call out the racist uncle or the homophobic family member, like we, that is our job. And if we're not doing it, we are complicit in these systems and this oppression um, continuing. Yeah. And as uncomfortable as that can be, right? Um, that is our role. You're, you're right. Cause um, yeah, and I've just, and it, it has to happen. So, um, and that's just yeah. our work. That is our responsibility, and um, yeah, and I'm seeing more of it. Sure. I mean, I've had a handful of friends be like, "How do I, how do I talk to my dad about him? Keep saying all lives matter, um, you know." And it's, it's like, you'll get you'll get through. Um, so, yeah, yeah. How can people support your work, and how and then how can people connect with you? Yes, that, that is really important right now. Um, I've never been great about asking for support. And in this pandemic, I've had to do that, right? Um, and so there are a few ways that people can connect with me. Um, one is by just dropping by my website, DarrenCalhoun.com. Um, another way is to look up my band, The Many, M-A-N-Y. Um, our website is TheManyAreHere.com. 
Um, and there's a few things that are happening right now that, that are kind of new for me in this idea of support. Of course, we love it when you stream our music. We love it when you share it. We love it when you ask your worship leader or, or pastor to, to include our music in, our, in your services, even the online services. We've made lyric videos and liturgies that you can use for free. Um, but also, we, have, we now have a Patreon. Great. So uh, for as little as $3 a month, you can support my band. Um, or if you are somebody who just likes to do direct, you can uh, cash at me or Venmo me at Hey Darren. Um, that's also my Twitter and Instagram handle. So feel free to reach out to me there if you just want to talk or see what other work I'm doing in the world. Um, but yeah, uh, get in touch, reach out. I am available and I try to make videos that explain more stuff like this. Um, and lately I've been doing them about once a week. Uh, just to, to give context to what, you, what you're hearing and hear the way that I kind of talk about these things. Yeah. And I will put all that, those links in the show notes for people. Um, but even those videos I've really appreciated. Um, and some of them even being written. I mean, you did one recently where you, at the end, shared that this was written five years ago. Um, yeah. And it sounds as if you wrote it today. Um, and I think that is so important for many of us to hear and see um, that these are year-long, century-long, dec- mm-hmm. multi-decade-long issues. Um, and yeah, I'm, I and I want to say too, I think um, you are um, truly a a human who is embodying love and joy for years. And as exhausted as you are, um, I know that. Um, there is, there's something beautifully deep within you. And I would say it's the divine living through you um, and drawing people in to goodness and love and inclusion. And you are embodying that. You've embodied it to me, uh, but you're embodying it to so many. So I am thankful for your work and thankful for your personhood um, and thankful mm-hmm. for your friendship as well. Thank you, Nathan. I really appreciate it. And so friends, as you continue to do the work of racial justice, as you lament and confess, and as you discover compassion, and as you find joy even when things become exhausting, may you have peace, may you have calm, may you have happiness.